it is the thing that we get asked about most often. Almost every every time a standard goes out for public comment, there'll be at least one comment, probably two or three, that sort of say, why are we using Z spellings when it's a British standard? Um, and the reason is, is that we use the spellings that come from the shorter Oxford English Dictionary. And those actually do use Z spellings rather than S spellings. And Z spellings are actually an older form of English. PSI presents The Standard Show, the podcast that brings you the stories behind the standards with Matthew Childs and Cindy Paragill. Today's episode is on the language of standards. Hello and welcome to The Standard Show. My name is Matthew Childs and I'm with Cindy Paragill. Hello, Cindy. How are you? Almost there. And you? Always striving. Now, the aim of this podcast is to bring you the stories behind the standards. And in this episode, we are looking at the very words themselves, the language of standards. The voice you heard at the top of the episode was one of our guests, Mary Groom, an editorial project manager here at BSI, talking about, well, something I thought was odd when I started working in standards. And after listening to Mary, it seems I am not alone. And that's the issue of the use of the Z rather than S in the spelling of words in British standards, and in particular for the word standardisation. Cindy, same for you? Yep, that jumped out at me too. But I guess now that I've seen it spelled with Z so often, when I do see standardisation spelled with an S elsewhere, it makes me really want to reach out to my red editing pen and change it. (laughs) Yes, the editing red pen. That's another thing Mary mentions in my conversation with her. Now, in this episode, Mary is joined by fellow BSI Editorial Project Managers, or EPMs, Andy Barrett and Kevin Laverty, and also by Lucy Carter, Content Development Delivery Manager at BSI. They are all members of BSI's content development team, or put more simply, the editorial team, who have a very important job in the development of standards, as they have the final word on the words that make up standards, in this case, British standards. Between them, Lucy, Mary, Andy and Kevin, they have over 40 years of standards editing experience, and in their careers, they have literally edited hundreds of standards. They take us inside the editing process and also tell us about some of the precise and particular language used in standards and also about some of the disagreements or robust conversations about the words or even in some cases about a single word. But also they bring across some of that immense satisfaction that comes from having the final say on what goes in the standard and it's finally published and is being used by organisations to improve the way they are doing things. Now, Cindy, we can't really cover an episode on the language of standards without looking at the word standard itself. It's an everyday term and we all have them. I presume you have your standards too? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Now, standards that have been in the news politically here in the UK recently, and it's all the controversy around standards in public life, but probably best not to go there. Yeah, best not to. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Mary was talking about how BSI uses the Shorter Oxford English Dictionary, or OED, for its definitions. Now, I say shorter, it's actually 3,472 pages long. And the full OED, get this, Cindy, 21,730 pages long. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Now in the short OED, there are seven definitions of the word standard. So first we might have what seem an obvious one. Definition one, 
a level of quality or attainment. So that's like um, raising standards in schools. Mm -hmm. But then we have a few different ones. So definition three is a tune or song of established popularity, like um, a jazz or a blues standard. Then there's definition five, where standard means a military or ceremonial flag hoisted on a pole or rope, as in raising the standard as a rallying point. And then there's definition seven, which is probably my favourite, where a standard is a tree or shrub growing on a stem at full height, as in a standard rose. Oh, I love that. Learning something new every day, aren't we, Matthew? (laughs) Now, that's all well and good for the OED. But for completeness, Matthew, uh, we should really also add the BSI definition of standard. This comes from BS0, the standard for standards. It states that a standard is a document established by consensus and approved by a recognized body that provides for common and repeated use, rules, guidelines, or characteristics for activities or their results aimed at the achievement of the optimum degree of order in a given context. We'll hear more about BS0 later in the episode. Now, in part one, we'll hear from Lucy Carter about the overall approach to editing standards. Yep. And in part two, we'll hear from Mary Groom, Andy Barrett and Kevin Laverty about some of the specifics of language in standards and their experiences of editing standards. And slotted in between, we'll have some of our standards desk of news with stories about standards in electrotechnical engineering, toilets and cycling. And for one of those, I get to say that the Bible is being reviewed. (laughs) It's not often you get a chance to say that, eh? (laughs) It's not. Listen on to find out which one. Now, a reminder that here on The Standard Show, we really welcome your feedback. Do please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Twitter at Standard Show and check out the show notes for all the ways to get in touch. Do you want to know more about the role and purpose of standards in the modern world? Then BSI's free online course, The Power of Standards, is for you. Through its three modules, you'll learn about what standards are, why organizations use them, how they are made, and how and why people get involved in standards making. The course is designed to last around 30 minutes, but you don't need to complete it all at once. You can stop at any point and restart again later when you're ready. To find out more, visit bsigroup.com forward slash education. So in this first part, we hear from Lucy Carter. Now, Lucy has spent her entire career in words and publishing, starting from when she taught English as a foreign language whilst living in Japan. I spoke to her about the drafting rules for standards and if these have changed over the years. But I started by asking about her role at BSI and that of the editorial team. So I'm currently a delivery manager. So I was working um, on actually delivering standards, um, managing them and editing them. Um, In the time that I've been at BSI, I have moved into a management role, so I'm now supporting editorial project managers to um, do that delivery role and to manage and edit uh, standards that we publish. So you mentioned there the editorial team at BSI. So can you talk mm-hmm. us talk me through what what's the role of the editorial team? So the editorial team uh, is there to support the development of standards. 
So we work on national standards and we work on sponsored standards. And on a day-to-day basis, that means that an editorial project manager is working with stakeholders to actually um, craft that content. So that can be by correspondence or that can be in a meeting. So they'll be working to structure it, to draft it. um, And at points in the process, they'll also be directly editing the content as well. So um, editorial project managers have really varied roles. They can be doing Um, They won't be doing the same thing every day. Uh, So there's a lot of variety in it. Um, A lot of it is working with people, getting consensus on the the standard. That's a really key point for what we're doing. Um, And they are doing that by directly working with committees and drafting panels to, to get consensus on the content that's being included and consensus on the wording that's being used. And across the team, then, at sort of any one point, how many standards would you be working on? It's a good question, and it does vary. Um, so if you're working on a portfolio of national standards, you could be working on something from, uh, I don't know, 12 to 15 to 18 projects at a time. If you have a more varied portfolio where you're working on a mix of sponsored standards and national standards, it could be, um, you know, between five and 10. So across the team, then you may be looking at two to 300 standards at any one time. Um, Not quite 300, but um, 200 on average. Yes. So we, we do, we are working on a lot of projects at any one time. Um, so we do, we do publish a lot of standards regularly as well. This, obviously, we're talking to you today, it's an episode around the language of standards. So overall, how would you describe the language of standards? The language of standards is really um, specific and it needs to be specific to um, convey the information that, that's needed by the users of the standards. Um, so it has to be um, it has to be concise and it has to be clear and it has to be understandable by the audience. And because of the variety of standards that we produce, um, we have a lot of different audiences. So um, we have to make sure that it's suitable for those audiences. Um, the standards itself have to be written in a very specific way to make it clear to the user what they have to do. Um, the, um, when people are applying standards, they, they need to know what they need to do in order to meet it. And so what we're doing and the language we're using is all about making it clear to the user what they have to do. Now, in terms of uh, the editing process, then, how do you approach editing a standard? I mean, do you have any do you have any drafting rules that you use? Uh, yes. Um, again, to make sure that we're using the right language, we've got drafting rules that support us in being able to um, edit it to make it um, a usable document for the user. Um, to to approach editing the standard, um, you know, the editorial project managers, they're involved on a day-to-day basis. So throughout a project, they will build up a certain level of knowledge and understanding of the project, and that will definitely help them when they are editing the content. But in terms of um, approaching the edit itself, uh, they'll be 
uh, reading it through at a high level, making sure that they that it's understandable, that it reads well, and then they will be going through it in a much more detailed way, getting out that fine tooth comb, going through it, making sure that all the wording is correct, that it makes sense, that it's consistent, that nothing hasn't been missed out. Um, and the drafting rules that we have to support this is quite a, a lengthy document. Um, it is available. It's on the, the group website if you if you do want to go and take a look at it. Now, the document Lucy refers to there is the rules for the structure and drafting of UK standards. The rules are section two of a three section guide. Section one is BS0, the standard for standards, and section three are six standards editing policies covering areas such as fire safety, environment and copyright. But it's there to support, um, as a reference tool, to support how we structure something, how we word a particular thing, um, how we might style tables or lists, for example. So it, it, it's um, very specific about all elements of a document. I'm interested about this. I'm intrigued now about this document. So this, this is something that has grown up over time. It's become bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's sort of metaphorically sitting on the shelf there, the Bible of editing a standard. Um, well, it, it has been around for a long time in various guises. Um, it is quite a lengthy document, a bit dry, uh, I would even say. Um, it is based on the ISO directives. So um over time, when that gets updated, we will take on board those updates and update our drafting rules to make sure that we're consistent across all levels of standardization. We do have some other internal documents that support editing as well. That's a, sort of a combination of all of our um, knowledge and wisdom. Um, and, and it just helps us to be able to apply the rules better where there are um, you know, maybe where there are grey areas, we've we've um, built up this knowledge to sort of iron that out and make sure it's not grey anymore. So are these drafting rules the same for all types of standards? Yes and no. Um, all the drafting rules are the same. They need to be applied in the same way. But in terms of different types of standards, the main difference is the language that we would use to show what the provisions are. And that's what the user has to do. So for example, in a specification, the main um, verbal form that we would use is shall. In a code of practice, in a guide, we would use um, should. So it should be quite clear from when reading them uh, what type of standard it is um, just from the language that's being used. Now, in terms of your time here at BSI, Lucy, how, how has the editorial approach changed over the years? And, and if it has changed, you know, what's driven those changes? In the 10 plus years that I've been at BSI, the drafting rules have been updated a couple of times. Um, the rules don't tend to change that much or that quickly. The high level rules stay the same throughout. Um, we need to be consistent across standardization and they do need to stand the test of time. Um, where 
what has changed is potentially the way we apply the rules and um, the document that I mentioned earlier about um, common drafting problems is we've we've tried to make it easier for people when drafting and editing to be able to apply those rules and understand um, um, how things should be worded or what things should be included or not included and what what's appropriate and what's not appropriate so you know we've tried to support um, support that to make sure that the, the quality of the content um, that we produce is good. So you think thinking uh, back maybe you know across all the standards that you've worked on is there any one one particular one that jumps out at you and you sort of when you see it out there in, in the public domain in the wild you point at it and think I did that that was really important work that I did there does any any of those standards uh, you know have lived long in the memory for you? Yeah, I think there are quite a few that live long in the memory, but um, there, there's one that um, particularly stands out. It, it's not often that you actually get to see them out there in the wild being used, but uh, one of the first standards that I worked on was on um, workplace first aid kits. So I remember being um, at a leisure centre and seeing on the side an example of this first aid kit that was made to the standard and it had a label on it that was um, quoted the number of the standard and so I was uh, trying to point it out to everybody I was with but um, obviously I was the only one who was really excited but yes it, it does always um, mean a lot when you get to see them in action so whenever I see um, a workplace first aid kit with BS8599 uh, marked onto it you know I can feel like a you know that was a job well done um, yeah great to see it being used so in part two of this episode, we'll hear from Lucy's colleagues, Mary, Andy and Kevin from the editorial team at BSI about some of the particular language of standards. But for now, it's that time of the episode, Cindy. Shall we have the standards desk of news? Yep, let's do it. Meet the young professional leaders in electrotechnical standards. Three young professional leaders have been elected to serve as the collective voice of the IC Young Professionals in the upcoming year. The election took place during the week-long IC Young Professionals workshop, where over 100 participants had the opportunity to learn more about IEC standardisation and conformity assessment activities. The three new YP leaders, Lee Emmel from Germany, Mohammed Hassan from the United Arab Emirates and Colin Sheldon from Australia will initiate several projects that will be developed with young professionals from their region. Flush with sanitation standards. This month saw the celebration of World Toilet Day. There are millions of people across the world who don't have access to clean sanitation. ISO 3500 non-sewered sanitation systems made international headlines when it was first published in 2018, gaining the support of national and international organizations. It underpins the development of revolutionary new technologies, such as standalone sanitation systems that safely treat waste without the need to be connected to a traditional sewerage system. And finally, have your say on bicycle safety requirements. The standard ISO 4210 is out for public consultation. The standard, which comes in 10 parts, covers everything from pedals to brakes to saddles to fork test methods. We mentioned this standard in episode 34, our Standards and the Olympics episode, 
and earlier in episode 22, our press conference, when our guest Dan Farrell of Melton Bicycles referred to it as the Bible. Well, the Bible is being reviewed. It's not often you get a chance to take part in that. Closing date for comments is on the 29th of December. Visit standardsdevelopment.bsigroup.com and search ISO 4210 and have your say. And that's the Standards Desk of News. Are you a postgraduate studying at a UK university? Do you have a research idea or project that involves standards in some way? Well, if so, BSI's student research program can help. The way it works is simple. We gain valuable information about an area of interest to our standards work, while you can benefit from mentorship to support your project and the chance to gain knowledge and exposure that may increase your future employability. To find out more about the program, including case studies of previously supported projects and how to apply, visit bsigroup.com forward slash education. So in this second part, we'll hear from Mary Groom, Andy Barrett and Kevin Laverty about some of the particular language of standards and also their editing experiences. We start with Mary Groom. Mary talks about when editors get involved in standards development, that big red pen of editing and when it shall rather than should. But we start with her standards journey. Um, So my background is in um, publishing and editing. And before I came to BSI, I was working as an editor at City and Guilds. And when I was there, I was working on developing teaching and learning materials, and in particular, exam practice books for electricians who were working with the wiring regulations, which is BS 7671. So I'd already sort of started to get some familiarity with standards through that work. Um, and then when I when I left City and Guilds, I came to BSI in 2012. So you're now an editorial project manager for BSI. So on a day-to-day basis, what does that involve? Uh, so I manage and edit standards projects. I usually work on about 10 to 14 projects at a time. And basically, I sort of work with the panels of experts who actually draft the standards, and then I advise them on wording, I edit the standards, um, help get them issued for public comments and see it all the way through to publication. So over your time here at BSI, if you're doing 10 to sort of 10 to 12 at, uh, at a time, you must have edited a lot of standards over that period. Yeah, I think it's over 100 at, at this point. <laughs> and you say that you're working with the experts. At what point are you brought in to the standards development process? Uh, so with national standards, the um, the committee manager assembles a, a panel, usually from people who are on a technical committee. Um, and then when the project's approved, I then sort of start off the project with them in a kickoff meeting and then work with them th- through having sort of various meetings throughout sort of a year to 18 months, which is what it takes to develop a standard generally. So in a sense then, uh, who is holding the metaphorical pen when the sort of those original ideas are, are put down on, on the screen? Uh, it is often very collaborative. I mean, lots of people contribute different things. And then I come along with my big red pen and <laughs> correct them all. <laughs> now, in terms of red pen, then that's an interesting, an interesting point there, because um, obviously you're looking at the, at the particular nature of, of the language. So I suppose from, a, from your experience, you know, how would you describe overall the language of standards? 
Um, so it does have to be very particular. Um, what we try to do is it's very important that there's no misunderstanding or ambiguity in the language. It has to be very clear what the user has to do in order to comply with the standard. And we, we do that by the use of certain words. Um, so, for example, we have different types of standards, um, specifications, codes of practice, guides, and each of them has a different verbal form that we use. So for specifications, it would be shall and codes of practice, it should. And, and we use those words to sort of indicate that the things that the user has to do, the provisions. Um, and then we also use other words in different ways, like may, for example. Um, in standards, we only use it in the sense of permission, um, that something may be done. And we don't use it as it's used in kind of everyday language as more kind of possibility. Like it, it may be that, it may not be sort of thing. Now, one thing I've always been fascinated by, well, not fascinated by, but it's a, it, people always say to me, what, why is it written in a certain way? So standardisation with a Z, that feels feels wrong, but I, I don't think it is, is it? Not not for us, for our drafting rules. Um, it is the thing that we get asked about most often. Almost every every time a standard goes out for public comment, there'll be at least one comment probably two or three that sort of say, why are we using Z spellings when it's a British standard? Um, and the reason is, is that we use the spellings that come from the shorter Oxford English Dictionary. And those actually do use Z spellings rather than S spellings. And Z spellings are actually an older form of English. I think the, the S is, is sort of Frenchified. And Z, <laughs> Frenchif- is, the, the, Z is the purer English, actually. <laughs> Frenchified, I like that. I'm going to use that from now on. Now, given your experience here in editing standards, and you say you've worked on well over 100 in the time you've been at BSR, you must have some examples of sort of the unique and quirky language style we've used for standards. Have you got any examples there? Um, one thing that came up recently, I mean, we do often have a lot of debates in in sort of meetings, and, and quite often I just have to say, well, that is just, it's what's in the drafting rules. We've standardised this approach, and that's the what we have to use. Um, I I recently had quite a long exchange over email with a panel who were very unhappy because our our style is to spell sulfur with an F rather than a PH. Um, And we do it that way because that's what most of the scientific community use, the the F spelling. And so we had a very long email exchange where people were getting into the the roots of the word and how it differs in different languages. And it was very interesting, but I still had to say at the end, we have to do what is in the drafting rules. And that's for standards. It was BS341. Is that right? And what was that? What was that standard about? Uh, It's gas cylinders. And and the word (laughs) sulfur was actually is actually only used in one place, but it was still very important that they wanted to have this discussion and so that was a long yeah. discussion about one the, the use of one word in, in, at one at one point within a huge document. Yeah. And would you say that was is that typical or atypical of the sorts of conversations that you have with, with standards makers around the language of standards? Uh, it can it can be typical. I mean, people. I mean, obviously, it's it's very good that people care so much about about what what is said and how it's said. Um, and it's, it's, you know, they, they feel very strongly about it, um, as do we, because we want it to be um, correct in terms of our rules and to make sure that it's clear. Now, one of the issues Mary talked about was the importance of the precision of language. I picked this up with Andy Barrett. Before joining BSI, Andy had a career in legal publishing and he's been working as a BSI editor for just over three years. 
and he talks about the important consideration of objective verification when writing standards and how disagreements are resolved to reach consensus on the final text and the importance of asking the simple and often what might seem daft questions. But I started by asking him about his view on the overall language of standards. I think the best way to describe it is that I think overall standards are not written the way we speak or how things are generally written. In fact, standards actually shine a light on when we speak, we generally leave a lot to interpretation. So a classic example is when we use the word ensure. We may say we ensure we do something, but when you think about it, what does that actually mean? You might say we ensure that a wall is stable, but how are we actually going to do that? It's very, very subjective. One person's way of ensuring a wall doesn't fall down may be different to another person's. So standards have to be written so they are objectively verifiable. You have to say exactly what it is you're going to do. I think another example as well is is the use of consider, something we say a lot. Um, But consider implies thinking about something. You know, for example... In PAS 29,000. Now, PAS 29,000 is a British standard sponsored by the Department of Transport here in the UK. It sets out measures that can help stop commercial vehicles being used by criminals and terrorists. The organisation shall consider the security implications. I mean, this could mean just a passing thought to one person, you know, yeah, done that. What you need to say is what you are actually going to do to consider So you would say something like the the organisation shall document a list of security risks. This both demonstrates a process and something that is objectively verifiable. We also need to be careful about how we apply adjectives, as, as these are very subjective. For example, large, small, soft, hard, adequate, sufficient. These are very subjective and best avoided. For example, we might say in a standard, allow a small gap for ventilation allow sufficient time for the concrete to set. But this is all open to interpretation. We are much more interested in learning about the quantifiable measurements so that we know what level of smallness we want, what level of hardness, what level of sufficiency is required. And that would best be expressed in um, maybe an amount of time. Like any content creator, we need to be aware of how diverse our audiences, both at home and globally. Um, so it's in very it's very important we are accurate and we don't um, use terms that maybe are subjective to us. I remember um, one standard I worked on very um, very early on um, referenced a, an English garden wall. Um, And another mentioned, I think it was BS6173, talked about catering equipment in a typical village or church hall. I mean, we may know what that means, but does our audience uh, know what it means? And and, and also, does it cover everything we mean to include? When we say church hall, do we mean uh, a community centre? Or, you know, we have to be very, very careful that, you know, in essence, we're not leaving something else out that is very, very important. And, you know, you can have (laughs) endless, it's quite fun because you're really talking semantics um, and you can have endless uh, conversations about what something actually means. Um, 
but yeah ultimately you you have to to to, to reach consensus and, and reach a um a term that that that, that everyone is um is, is is happy with and what in terms of then sort of you mentioned there about consensus and obviously reaching agreement what about the sort of challenges or pinch points or issues you've had to deal with over your time as an editorial project manager yeah i think the key one is is achieving consensus um you know, standards are consensus-based documents. So that is how we, you know, when they are published, that they're, they're based on that. Um, and I think there, there are challenges. I mean, when you think that standards are drafted by a group of experts coming from a range of business, industry, academia, for example, it's not surprising that gaining consensus to a published draft can be challenging. I think one of the things to bear in mind is that consensus is often thought as everyone in agreement it doesn't the bsi definition definition uh in if you uh, and and it's written out in bs0 is uh general agreement characterized by lack of sustained opposition so you don't necessarily have to be in full agreement but if the document serves the overall purpose of what it is there to achieve then that is enough to to pass it through to publish and um, I mean, I'm not saying that disagreement happens every time, but it can happen. And there are ways that you can work to, to resolve it. Um, very often it is in the content, really looking at the content and, and nailing down precisely what it is that, that you can change or amend. Um, it is often a, a slight nuance of what we are trying to, to say. Other times, you know, you, you, you look at the groups who are, in a disagreement and you work with them um, uh, separate from the rest of the drafting group and you work with them more closely with the parties that disagree um, to, 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 to try and have, you know, you have extra extra meetings to, to work out what it, how it is we can, we can resolve it. And, you know, we usually get there in the end. So from an ed- editing perspective, then you've talked about the importance of reaching consensus uh, and I just wonder from from, from uh, the sort of expertise that you bring to the party, is it better that you don't know anything about the subject matter to have that objective view about the final words that appear in the document? I think it can have that advantages, yes, because you're, that, I, that idea that you're a lay person means that you're reading it very, very objectively uh, and you're reading for sense and you are thinking about your audience, whereas your drafting panel are thinking from their own uh, sub- subjective uh, experience and expertise, which is right and which is, of course, you know, that's what they're there to do. And the difference is, is that what, that's what we are here to do uh, in, in terms of ensuring that it is right for our audience. And one of the... Um, one of the great things about this this job is often you think, oh, no, I'm going to ask a really silly question here. But then you are something. And then it's wonderful when the drafting panel are in agreement with you. So you, you might say something along the lines of, I'm not sure that makes sense. And do you mean this or do you mean that? And then it's wonderful when they say, oh, actually, no, you're right. Um, yes, we should word it like this. It's quite a lot of job satisfaction for people who like working with language and words. 
I suppose it's an, it's asking those simple questions, and I, I would suspect if you're uh, a committee or a drafting panel has been working on a standard for a long time, it's a you, there's lots of wood for the trees moment. They just don't spot things that you're coming in and looking at because you're looking at it afresh. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And it's in many ways it, it is asking those um, those what you might think of as daft questions, but it's satisfying when actually. They weren't daft questions. They were sensible questions. So, Andy, you've obviously you've uh, you've relatively recently with BSI there, but you've talked about uh, the sort of job satisfaction you get from playing a part in in developing standards. I just wonder, is there an example of a standard that's out there in the wild now that you you sort of point to and say, "Well, I helped do that, and that was really important." Absolutely. Um, a recent example is PAS twenty nine thousand. Um, the a security-based standard on commercially operated vehicles. Um, very, very important standard um, that the government was uh, driving through. And it's it's very fulfilling when you see that standard published and out there and you see the number of down, downloads each week and you know that industries and organisations across the country are using that standard. And also you can... You, you also work with marketing departments as, as well to um, see how the standard will be marketing. It's, it's very um, satisfying when you see that this standard has been mentioned in the national press as well. Do you want to help make people's lives easier, safer and more enjoyable? If so, why not become a standards maker with BSI and have your say on the development of standards? Standards affect all of us every day, wherever we go, whatever we do. By defining good practice, they help people, organizations, the economy and society. We welcome applicants from all fields, backgrounds and career stages. Our goal is to have a balance of views around the table. If you want to make a difference, start your standards-making journey now by visiting bsigroup.com forward slash get involved. In my chat with Andy Barrett, he spoke about the techniques used by editors for resolving disagreements with drafting panels about the provisions in standards, and also about the sense of personal satisfaction about producing that final product. This sense of personal satisfaction is also mentioned by our final guest in this episode, Kevin Laverty, who has edited over 300 standards during his nearly 20 years with BSI. Now, Kevin, you've, I think you've been in BSI for 18 years now, is that correct? Yeah, yes, 18. Uh, and I think I'm getting the hang of it now. So, uh, <laughs> so over, all, over, all that, over all that time, you must have edited, you know, uh, dozens, maybe hundreds of standards. I just wonder from a an editorial approach, you know, in terms of that, how, how we approach editing the standards, has how has that changed over the years? And if it has changed, what's driven those changes? I, I don't think overall uh, there's been a change in, in the way necessarily that we edit standards. Uh, some things have been a little more relaxed and some things have become more robust. Uh, you, you know, they, they tend to relate to policy issues uh, ultimately I think what we're trying to do is is maintain quality and try to, and, and there's been a real commitment 
to maintaining that quality even as the number of projects that we manage uh, rises. Uh, so so the, the, the kind of work that uh, we're doing now, uh, you know, 18 years ago, I would not have uh, uh, seen myself being able to do that. So there, there is a very, that, that marriage of project management and the editorial skill uh, is, is, is very, very significant because we have to manage them more, more, more carefully to publish more standards, I guess. So obviously, um, Kevin, the the sort of the drafting panel, the committee itself is is writing the standard, and your 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 role there is to, is to help edit the standard. I just wonder, you know, what happens if uh, language sort of lands on your table that you you know you really can't use for what for whatever reason? How do you resolve those those sort of those disagreements maybe between yourself and and the drafting team? Yeah, yes, that that happens a lot. You you often get. Uh, drafting panels who include provisions that effectively require, uh, for example, third-party certification, which is against BSI policy or or other potentially anti-competitive measures. And sometimes that is just an accident and that they've expressed the provision in such a way that that's how it reads. And sometimes panelists are, are, are actually trying to regulate uh, the conduct of the of the industry in a way that really wouldn't be acceptable and I think the so the this is saying that within a so so a, so on third party certification sorry they, they this is where they would specify within a standard that you must be certified against it is that what you mean yes you're effectively making a third party certification uh, a precondition of compliance with the standard and as you can imagine, that uh, can involve a very significant cost to to the user. Uh, which, you know, so that 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 might be intrinsically anti-competitive because there will be firms who can afford that investment, and there are firms that can't afford that investment. So you're automatically limiting uh, the audience of that standard, and and therefore the number of uh, firms who can claim compliance. You've got to try and work with them to come up with a solution. So rather than just saying, no, you can't do that, it's a matter of sitting down with them and, and trying to understand why they're including that provision. And more often than not, you can come up with uh, either a modification to the provision or some explanatory text that sets out their concerns and what they're trying to avoid or to encourage and you can usually come up with something that is acceptable and can be included. Uh, we also try to pers- to provide a lot of information, a lot of other information to drafting panels at the kickoff uh, of each project, basically to avoid them getting too far into the drafting. Uh, you know, we, we, whilst including provisions that wouldn't be acceptable, so we're trying to anticipate some of the more common issues and trying to help the the drafting panel avoid those those traps and try to make things move more smoothly. As a final question, I asked Kevin about that issue of personal satisfaction and if there was a standard that he was particularly proud of being involved with. I, I, I think the most proud the, the, the proudest ones that you know, the ones we feel proudest of are, are those where 
the, the, the panel uh, obviously seem happy uh, with what you've achieved. And I, I remember working on uh, a new standard on rock bolts, of all things, uh, several years ago. And the text had already been written. And I, I took it away and effectively rewrote large parts of it. And when I presented it, the, the convener uh, came back to me and and effectively said, you know, we you know I, we we don't know how you managed to take all of this text and take it to pieces and put it back a, a, in a way that kind of flows the way that it does, and uh, that that was very gratifying. So I had to find out what wrote. So I did a little research to find out what wrote bolts were, so as that I can uh, could, could edit it, and that's something that I try to do with each draft when I get the chance, if I get the chance, and uh, it's not always very easy. But I, I, I try to find out what each draft is about. So I do, I do, you know, a lot of uh, uh, web surfing to find out as much as I can about particular the, the particular topics of of my drafts, so as that it, I can help. Uh, build an understanding of what they are and what they do. And I think that helps with the editing as well. You must um, you must find that, well, maybe you don't actually, you, you covered, covered afresh at a project, but is there a, in all your in all your time, do you find yourself drawn to a particular type of standard or a particular sector or a particular industry where you just enjoy the sorts of, the sort of tone of voice and the, and the concepts that are included within those particular standards? Do you have, do you have a set of favourites, I suppose is where I'm going, Kevin? I, I, I used to... I used to favour particular types of, of standard, but to be honest, I think a lot of the the, the pleasure that I experience is in the variety. Uh, I, I tend to like the construction, some of the construction standards, uh, because I used to work in construction. Uh, my, 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 my father was a builder, uh, so it's great to uh, talk about these things. Uh, that, that gives a, an, an extra special element to that and uh, uh, for some time I've been heavily involved in the more uh, business continuity and risk management side of standards and that that has been great to learn more about these these topics these areas uh, in and of themselves but also because they crop up in other standards that aren't specifically about business continuity and risk assessment but they talk about these things and and that gives me additional background information that I can use to to help edit those documents. Now, Cindy, I looked up the standard Kevin talked about in our, in my conversation with him, the standard that giving so much pride to work on, and that was BS7861-1 specification for rock bolting. Now, a rock bolt is used in tunnelling and underground mining, where a steel rod is inserted in a hole drilled into the roof or walls of a rock formation, providing support to the roof or sides of the cavity. So, there you go. Really interesting. I I really like this one point that came out of the conversation with Kevin. Well, in fact, all of the conversations with our editors, really, of the job of editing the standard being so satisfying and rewarding when the standard is being published and mm. being used. You know, um, working on a project for 18 months, having to negotiate those maybe tricky conversations with members of the drafting panel um, to get that final version, and then getting that consensus on the final wording. 
And it's not just because it's the end of a long project. Um, there is that real satisfaction of being involved in something that will make a genuine difference. Um, so I really like that. It also sounded to me as if Lucy can't go into a leisure center without checking whether there is a first aid kit attached to the wall. That's true. <laughs> now, talking of tricky conversations there to mm. reach that final consensus, I also looked at the standard Mary spoke about, BS341-1 gas cylinders cylinder valves, which she has edited and is now out for public consultation. Now, this was the controversy over the spelling of the word sulfur with an F rather than, as you might imagine, with a PH. Well, I looked it up and here it is. General requirements 4.2, note one, third sentence. For high pressure liquefiable gases, e.g. carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide and sulfur hexafluoride burst disks are used. So there you go again. I was also struck by what Andy said about how the editor sometimes needs to ask those simple and what might appear to be daft questions to see things with those fresh set of eyes and to make sure that the text is clear and unambiguous as it can be. It's just such an important um, part of the process. Absolutely. Well, our thanks to Lucy Carter, Mary Groom, Andy Barrett and Kevin Laverty for talking to us and also to Gavin Jones for his contribution to this episode and of course to you for listening. To find out more about how BSI produces standards, go to bsigroup.com and search BSI Guide to Standardisation and that'll be standardisation with a Z. You have been listening to an episode of The Standard Show with Matthew Childs and Cindy Parrigill. Subscribe to us now, wherever you get your podcasts. You just heard a stripped media production. 